Let's turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Bible. Anyone need a Bible? Let's pray before we begin. Father, we pray once again just for the fullness of your revelation, God. And we know we can't fully get that, Lord, without the Old Testament, without a working knowledge of it. And Lord Jesus, you came to fulfill the law and fulfill prophecy. Just pray that we would see you in the scripture this evening. Lord, show us your heart that we may seek after it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... Isaiah 24, so we will be starting in Isaiah 27, but just to put it in context, remember, as we have been going through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has a picture well into the future, including 750 years from the time that he lived, to the time when Jesus was born, anointed crucified, raised from the dead, we see a picture of those here in this book. He also sees a picture much farther into the future than that, literally thousands of years, when Jesus would return. Jesus uh, says in, in John chapter 3 that he did not come the first time to judge the world, but to save the world, to bring salvation. But the second time he would come he would come to judge. But Isaiah also is dealing with current events. And so it's not an easy book to study through because he will often jump from one to the other without giving a whole lot of notice. And it's not an easy book to teach from all the time. In fact, there are some verses tonight which really just made me scratch my head. What on earth? Is he talking about actually what's, what's the Holy Spirit talking about here? But in, um, in ch it, one of the things that the book of Isaiah deals with is the great tribulation period discussed by Jesus in Revelation, I mean, Matthew 24, and then in also in uh, the book of Revelation is discussed. By the way, we will be going through this summer the book of Revelation. I does that start this Friday? It started actually last Friday. So we'll be going through the book of Revelation on, on Friday nights. The Bible teaches that there will be a great tribulation period. Uh, um, what Jesus says in Matthew 24 that has never been known, so the severity of the tribulation and sort of the geographical area of which would be subject to it was has never been known in the history of, of the world. And 
you know, it's an interesting thing considering the flood. So, <laughs> you know, not as many people, not the same percentage of people are going to die as in the flood, but it is going to be a severe ongoing tribulation period. The Bible says that the children of God are not appointed to wrath. There will be a rapture of the church prior to the tribulation period. But Isaiah 24, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, goes into a fair amount of detail of what happens during this tribulation period. Isaiah 25 and 26 really uh, describes the time after the tribulation period Jesus will return. Remember, Jesus promised to return, sets up his kingdom on earth, Isaiah 25 and 26 describe that uh, th- that that time at the end of Isaiah 26 it says come my people enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you hide yourself as it were for a little moment until the dig- indignation is passed there will be people who are saved and come to the Lord during the time of tribulation during the great tribulation period This is describing them. It's saying, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed. And we discussed last time, it is believed, the Bible talks about there's an area where the the Lord's people are going to sort of hide out. Uh, Many of them are going to hide out during the tribulation period. Some people think it's in Petra, which is in modern-day Jordan, until the indignation is passed, until this Jesus returns and ends the tribulation period. Verse 24, For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. So, not a time which we want to be in. And... Um, you know, Guillermo on Friday night actually uh, went over, you know, if we're not going to be here during that time, what do we really care? I mean, why should we really care? Why not just skip all these passages? Well, there's passages that are pretty specific that in light of the return of Christ, we need to be working our, our salvation with fear and trembling. And there's actually a number of parables that discuss how the the knowledge of the return of Christ and the return of Jesus should have just a refining effect in our lives. First John says, in light of this hope, we should be purifying ourselves. You know, when Jesus comes, I want to bless his heart. I want my life I want to be in the midst of a life that's blessing his heart when Jesus comes. I don't want to be off taking advantage of grace and trashing my life. I, I, I want to be empowered by grace and serving him. There's actually a lot in the New Testament uh, addressing that very thing. Chapter 27 goes back to describe, verse 1 actually is describing the return of Christ, and then verse 2, again, the rest of the chapter, 
describing the millennial reign, what's going to happen when Jesus uh, returns. In verse 1, it says, in that day. Now, throughout the book of, uh, of Isaiah, whenever you see in that day, think of the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, where he comes to judge. In that day. The Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will lay, uh, rather, he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now, in Revelation chapter 12, Satan is referred to as that great dragon, In Revelation chapter 20, it says, Then I saw, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. This is the revelation of John. And this is, or this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, I guess, which is told by John. And this is describing the very end of the tribulation. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished, but after these things he must be released for a little while. So, verse 1 of chapter 27 of Isaiah, speaking of that event, apparently appears to be speaking of this event where he is slain. He is, his power uh, over, the, over the, the world. First John chapter 5 says the whole world lies under the sway of Satan, under the sway of the evil one. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to agree with that, right? I mean, you know, you, you look at the news and, and wow, this like seriously wicked demonic stuff going on out there. What a glorious day it will be. When we are restored, the kingdom of Jesus... The kingdom, Jesus established his kingdom on earth, so we will have new bodies. But not only will we have new bodies, we won't have Satan harassing us all the time. Is that awesome or what? I, I mean, <laughs> I think that is, that, that is so awesome. This is spiritual warfare. And, and, and it says, verse 2, I love this, In that day, sing to her. A vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury, meaning anger, is not in me. And so, does anyone remember the chapter that Isaiah spoke before about God and his vineyard? Anyone remember? Isaiah chapter what? Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Chapter 5. In that chapter, 
He says, I dug up the vineyard, I cleared out its stones, I planted it with choices vines, I built a tower in its midst, I also made a wine press, I expected to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild or sour or bitter grapes. In the millennial kingdom, and, th- and that's what it's like because, w- you know, we're, we're, we're now in, in bodies that have been defiled by sin, we're in a world that's under the sway of the evil one, and so the vineyard at least in Israel, God did all that thing, those things for it. It yielded sour grapes. Here, doesn't happen. This is talking about the millennial reign. Although there are parallels, by the way, to the Christian life. I would have no problem with anyone taking this verse and applying it directly to the Christian life. I, the Lord, first of all, in that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine, just the song of the Lord into our hearts. He sings into her. I, the Lord, keep it. I am so encouraged that the Bible says, not just here, but over and over, that the Lord is responsible for the vineyard, which is my life, for the church. John chapter 15, we talked about it this morning. God's the vine dresser. Isn't that awesome? It's like he is the vine dresser. We don't have to think. We don't have to be expert farmers, you know, to sort of grow up spiritually. The Lord is the vine dresser. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment. Do you guys know that? It's one of the benefits of having the Holy Spirit. You are watered every moment, every moment of the day. You're watered. That's one of the things I love about John chapter 15. Is that that whole, that whole imagery, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. The branch is, is, is grafted right into the vine, is constantly getting that sap from the vine. God waters it every day. Lest any hurt it, I keep it day and night. It is talking about the millennial kingdom and the glorious time there. But, you know, there are, there are obvious parallels to the Christian life. And then I just love verse 4. Fury is not in me. Fury is not in me. Does anyone, does that make, (laughs) does that remind anyone of any chapter in Isaiah? How about Isaiah chapter 12 where it says, he describes um, again, once again, accepting the Messiah's Lord. Uh, It says, Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away. Why is it turned away? Because all of the anger and wrath were poured out on Jesus on the cross. So we don't have to go around thinking that God is angry with us. Remember we were talking about this morning. We want wisdom from the Lord. He gives it liberally and without reproach. He doesn't treat, you know, he doesn't treat us like our fourth grade math teacher. You know, what do you mean asking that question? Go figure it out yourself. I've I've told you how to do it three times, you know. God doesn't do that. There's no anger in him. The anger was put on the cross. But here, describing the millennial reign, similar imagery. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn through them together or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. Just... Laying hold of the Lord, he, and we make peace with him. 
Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Once again, you see the sovereignty of the Lord. Who shall cause them to take root in Jacob? God shall cause them to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Now, again, you know, prophets looking forward, sometimes they don't, they see one thing, but it's really three or four things. It's like they, 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 they see what looks like one mountain, but it's really a chain of mountains. Guillermo talked about this on, on Friday night. It's so great to read about the history of Israel uh, in the fulfillment of this verse, because this particular verse has already been fulfilled, although it will reach its greatest fulfillment in the millennial reign. Israel, after it was abandoned, that it became a desolate place, a desolate place. And you can go back and, and, and read historians, you know, describing uh, the area. Mark Twain, actually, you know, he was that uh, among many other things, he was like a, 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 a the, the the national comedian. He's also an incredibly gifted writer. But he was ac- he, he one of the reasons he was so popular. He already, always had a witty things to say, and he used to he traveled through that area and mocked, you know, the the whole idea. What this is a land of milk and honey because in the late eighteen hundreds when he he went through it, I think eighteen seventies. He described, and I quote, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, a desolation. We never see a human being on the whole route, hardly a tree or shrub anywhere, even the, whole, even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil had almost deserted the country. I mean, things are pretty bad when there's no cactus in the desert, for crying out loud. I mean... Um, and, 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 and this was all predicted. It was all predicted because a series of enemies came in, not only deforested, deplanted, if that's a word. The whole the, you know, nation of, of, of Israel, today, it is either the third or the fourth largest exporter of fruit in the world. This little country the size of New Jersey third or fourth largest exporter of fruit in the world. Absolutely, the, the areas of the country, incredibly lush. Because the Jews came back in and tra- planted millions and millions and millions of trees. Really interesting uh, fact, and I, didn't, I don't, man, I don't know, understand this kind of stuff, but they actually increased the level of rainfall in the area by 15% because they planted so many trees. Now, you scientists, does that make sense? Because that does not make sense to me. How can you increase the level of, of rainfall? I, we have scientists here, so it doesn't make sense to any. Does that make sense? <laughs> What's that? Okay, and the moisture goes up from, okay, he's... Yeah, that rainforest. See, Amazon. That's why it rains there a lot. What's that? So, but but anyway, this prophecy says those who it says those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom in bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. 
<laughs> that's amazing. I, at least it is to me. I think that's an amazing prophecy. It will reach its even greater fulfillment in the millennial reign. These next few verses are tough. Woo! Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of uh, taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. So apparently what's going on here is that Israel, unlike the many nations of the tri- in the tribulations which were utterly wiped out, that did not happen to Israel, though it was chastened severely, Though it was chastened severely, it was brought back. It was reestablished in the area. Verse 7 again. Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Rhetorical question, no. Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? This is speaking of the great tribulation. So there were nations literally eliminated, slain, wiped out, eliminated. Not so with Israel, notwithstanding there was a considerable amount of sin on its part. Verse 9 just talks about how apparently the Lord has made the... There's different different interpretations of this, but what it appears to be, it says the Lord himself has made, uh, made all their idols and their idolatries and beat them to dust. Verse 10 speaks of the nations around it who were in the great tribulation, saying, Yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its bows are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore he who made them will have no mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. Apparently appears to be, you know, referring back to the tribulation, the period where God pours out His wrath, as described in the book of Revelation and Matthew, on the earth. Verse, uh, verse 12, and that day shall, and, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river of the brook of Egypt and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel, Verse 13, so it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria and those are who are outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of at Jerusalem. So chapter 27 appears to be, for, to, from beginning to end, a sort of a description of one, that, that day of the Lord coming back, Satan goes, Revelation chapter 20, verse... Uh, you know, th- this this description of Satan being bound or defeated and then the sort of the restoration of Israel, but then also a description of what happened to everyone around Israel. So uh, th- not, not easy things. It's um, really interesting to me, one of the most fascinating things to me is to read 
some of the Bible commentators from the 19th century, so the 1800s, most Bible commentators from the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, since Israel had not existed as a nation for two or 3,000 years, they saw these promises about Israel in the Bible, and they just took the promises, took out the name Israel, and put the church in. So they say, every time you read the word Israel, just insert the word church. The church has been grafted in because it was so far from their ability to comprehend that Israel could be become a nation again. They just couldn't believe that. So they said, this must be talking about the church. There were a couple of the best commentators that looked at it and go, you know, I know this makes no sense whatsoever, but it looks to me as I read the plain meaning of these verses that Israel as a nation is going to be reestablished as a nation. It's really cool reading them. I, I know there's one, uh, C.H. McIntosh's one. If you have the pulpit commentary, there's, there's one of those guys there um, that, that goes into that. And it's just so cool reading it because um, they're, just, they're, 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 they're just saying, I, I know none of this makes any sense, but this is it's what the Bible says, so I, I can't really explain it. But apparently Israel's going to become a nation again. So... Uh, uh, incredible prophecies about Israel being reestablished. Now, chapter 28, remember what I said about the book of Isaiah? Not easy because he goes from, he goes from present to near future to distant future to real distant future. He goes right back to the present in chapter 28. He says, verse 1, Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim. Hey, Dave, can we put up the um, can we put up the the map? Oh, wow, what's that? Okay, uh, the divided kingdom. Another one. Here we go. Yeah, that's a better one. So, uh, so. David, Saul and David um, established Israel. It's this whole, more or less this whole area here. After Solomon, there was a civil war, and these ten tribes right here basically cut off and apostatized. They basically made up their own religion, eventually completely left under King Ahab, and just followed the Baals, the the pagan... pagan, uh, gods. Judah, the capital of which is Jerusalem, is down here. Benjamin's down there somewhere as well. Those two tribes stayed down here. The Messianic line, starting with King David, continued in the land of Judah. So in the north, there was not one single good king ever from the time it was established. In the southern kingdom, um, actually, Repeatedly, there were good kings. There was also some bad ones too, but um, there were good kings down there. Isaiah is a prophet under King Hezekiah who came, tor- came kind of towards the end. Well, actually, no, it was about 200 years before, um, before Jerusalem was defeated by the Babylonians. But K- king Hezekiah was a very good king, although there are many people living in, in, in Judah at the time who were not good. 
This chapter, chapter 28, is gonna, he's gonna, Isaiah's going to start prophesying against this area right here, but then he's going to move to down here. Uh, so that's just to give you a little background. So he begins with prophesying against the northern kingdom. Another name for the northern kingdom in the Old Testament is Ephraim. That's one of the, the, the tribes um, in the north, Ephraim. Woe to the crown of pride. So woe means you're doomed. You're, you're in big trouble. Woe, verse 1, to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. So the northern kingdom was a fading flower. It's interesting, you know, with the Lord that when a nation is established with righteousness in the Word of God and they depart from the Word of God, they don't just, they don't, just don't collapse overnight because there have been so many deposits of righteousness that the nation will last for a while. So, so the United States, we're living on our... We're declining... And you could even say, in many respects, we've left the Christian heritage. We've pulled prayer out of the schools, that kind of thing. Some valedictorian wanted to give Jesus Christ uh, the uh, honor and praise during his speech. And the, um, some lawyers cut it out, uh, which, I, personally, I, I'm not sure that's constitutional. I think students have the right to do that, but he, they cut it out anyway. But, but, you know, this type of thing... Uh, happens, uh, our nation was established as a Christian nation. Really, really interesting. Sam and Elisa's school is the oldest school, first school in the United States, Boston Latin School. And we went to graduation last week. And it was established, uh, Harvard University was established to take students from this school. So this school predated Harvard. Both of Harvard and this school were established totally the Word of God. I mean, that's all it was about. And it was so interesting. I wish I had. Uh, I wish I had the. Uh, you don't happen to have the, uh, the the bulletin. What do you call it? The the program. You read the program of Boston Latin School, and it has all this stuff. And in the middle, it says reading. And I'm like, hmm, what, what that is? And, she, and, and some woman gets up there. She goes, and this reading is a traditional reading uh, that has been read every single commencement from. Uh, from 1815, but it doesn't say what the reading is, which is really out of place. You just looked at the program. It looked, what do you mean reading? It doesn't give who it is or whatever. They go on, and they start to, they get, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest under the shadow of the Almighty. This per, the principle reads Psalm 91. There's probably 2% of the people in the room who knows that it's Psalm 91. I ain't complaining. I can tell you that. But the mayor's up there on the platform, all these other dignitaries, you know. If people knew it was Psalm 91, they'd probably be suing the next day sort of deal. But because it was a tradition, it was, you know, it is, is they continue to read it at a public school. And anyway, that has all left. There's in the in sort of the public realm, at least in the school area. But the nation, in many ways, continues to thrive. Why? Because so many deposits have been made by righteous men and women serving the Lord for centuries. In the north, 
even though they completely turned away from the Lord, it took about, what was it, 250 years for the country to collapse. And, you know, I, I, that says something about the long-suffering of the Lord, but it also says something about the value of just investing your life in Jesus Christ and investing in a country, investing in righteousness, that it takes that long to undo it. Uh, you know, it's true that, you know, you build, take a lifetime to build a reputation and you can lose it one day. But, you know, with the Lord, these investments that are made really sometimes last for a century. Europe's still living on their deposits. Uh, they're much, much farther gone than the United States is. And we pray for a revival, for, for, for a return. Uh, certainly there were revivals in the southern kingdom. But it calls them a fading flower. It calls the northern kingdom that I pointed out a fading flower. This is very sad, the thought that our country may be a fading flower. You know, I, again, I, 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 we pray for revival around here, that the, that the, the flower will, you know, no longer start fading but become vibrant, which is the head of the verdant valleys to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and, str- has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The, <clears throat> The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim. You know, it's going to actually, this, this chapter has quite a bit to say about alcohol and abusing it. And at the root of alcoholism, you can call it a disease, it's sin, and the particular sin is what? Pride. It's pride. And, and, and most anyone who's had a history of alcohol will agree with you on that. It, 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 it makes, you know, the drunk feels, you know, a, 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 drunk, a man who's drunk who weighs 90 pounds can walk up to Mike Tyson and say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to beat you up. I mean, that's what they do. That's why their drunks are beaten up so much. They say and do stupid things. And, 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 and it says here, Verse 3, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot and the glorious beauty is a fading flower. So it repeats that, which is the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. Speaking of God's judgment there, I believe. In that day, so this is talking about judgment that happened in that day. The Lord of hosts will be for a clown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So verses 5 and 6 should be a great encouragement to all of us, even if it's true that we are in a nation that's a fading flower. Isaiah actually is going to do it twice in this chapter will just briefly break into an encouragement to the people who continue to, to live for the Lord. We know that in the northern kingdom, that even with uh, Jezebel uh, living up there, Ahab trying to kill all the prophets, there were still people up there who were a remnant, hiding out in caves and things like that. They were a remnant, and Isaiah sort of breaks from 
this thing where, look, there's going to be judgment on your whole land to encourage those who are still living for the Lord. And he says in verse 5, in that day the Lord of hosts will be as a crown of glory to you. You know, no matter how bad things are getting around us, that should not affect at all just our altar before the Lord where we can worship Him, where we can just be blessed His heart. You know, you read... You read uh, Richard Wormbrand and some of these guys who were in prison during the Soviet uh, uh, occupation of Romania and these other places. They were tortured in prison. And, and yet, some of the worship that happened in those places was so over the top good. And that's what this is referring to in verse 5 and 6. Uh, just the Lord will be as a crown of glory, as a diadem of beauty as a diadem of beauty. Verse 7, but they also, so when it says they also, as we're going to find out in this chapter, Isaiah is moving here from the northern kingdom down to Judah, which is, is sort of like the, you could, the, the analogy is the church. It's the house of God. You know, if the first you know, four or five verses of judgment are talking about sort of the world. This is the house of God. This is Jerusalem. This is the messianic uh, line is being preserved here. And now he's going to just come and he is going to prophesy against God's people living in the southern kingdom in Judah and Jerusalem. They also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. So, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but the Bible does not prohibit a Christian from drinking alcohol. It's, it's, it's such a twisted argument to try to say that it is, I, 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 that, that the Bible does that. But the Bible has very severe and couldn't be any clearer statements about, you know, if, if you're going to sort of, if alcohol is going to be a part of your life, you better watch it. You better be really, really, really careful. And... What is, what is getting drunk or, or what is inappropriate? It's not just falling on the ground dead drunk. It's whenever in, your judgment is impaired. If you have enough alcohol, for most people, by the way, it's, it's more than a drink, that impairs your judgment, you're in sin. <laughs> I mean, look, this is what the Word of God says. It's talking here, they stumble in judgment. Uh, and, 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 and that is the key. So, you know, if, if, if you know, alcohol is clearly a freedom that a Christian can, can exert, the Bible does say that we are never to drink anything if we're, it causes someone else to stumble. But even so, you better... What you do, you better be very, very careful about doing it in moderation. Verse 8, for all tables are full of vomit and filth, no place is clean. 
And then in verse 9 and 10, you have these, pro- these priests and prophets who are, are given over to drink, mocking Isaiah. So the, here's these people mocking him. And, and some of you who teach, uh, who teach and evangelize and share Scripture with people, you will be able to relate to this mockery because you've been mocked like this. Whom will he teach knowledge and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? In other words, oh, this is for little kids, this thing that he teaches. This is just for, you know, for us sophisticated adults. You know, get away from us. Go teach a bunch of little kids. Verse 7, this is actually a song of drunks here. For precept upon must be upon precept Precept all upon precept. It's like, give me a break, Isaiah. Give me a break, Chuck Smith. Precept upon precept, verse upon verse. Chuck, you know, uh, stop it. Greg Laurie, uh, uh, Bob Coy, uh, Granny Cale, Steve Cole. Stop this, you know. Stop this verse upon verse simplicity. This is just um, boring us to death. This is a song of drunkards. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. You know, one of the greatest uh, compliments I've, uh, I've ever had is, you know, I, I don't feel, I don't like Steve Cole's teaching because he's just too simple. It's a great compliment because you've just stuck me, you know, in the same category as, as many other teachers who have been accused of the exact same thing for teaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and always emphasizing the simplicity of the gospel. And mockers throughout the ages have said the same thing. Verse 9, oh, that's those just, who's going to listen to this message? Oh, just those weaned from milk. That's those drawn from the breast. These brand new, uh, you know, this may be good for a brand new eensy-beensy little Christian. Uh, But, you know, so these are just people tired of hearing Isaiah In verse 11, it says, For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing. So what's he he saying here? This is the message, same message that Jesus said. Come to to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you what? Rest and and same message since the beginning, uh, you know, of the Bible to the end. There's a place of rest. There is a place of rest for you, and this is what the prophets were saying. There's a place of rest in verse twelve, and it's saying God's going to say to these drunks who are mocking. Uh, and, and to these people to whom he said, this is the rest, and who have rejected that message. Look at the end of verse 12. Yet they would not hear. Is everyone following me? It's kind of a little, a little complicated following this. But what he's saying there in verse 12 is, these people to whom I gave this message, look, this is your rest. But at the end of verse 12, it says, yet they would not hear. So because you would not hear, this is what I'm going to tell you, verse 13. But the word of the Lord was to them, Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, here little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Now, did anyone follow that? So what he's saying 
is that, yes, this is really simple, precept upon precept and precept. And, yeah, you've been mocking the prophet Isaiah for teaching you just line upon line, precept upon precept. But that same word is going to be, is going to judge you, is going to be what judges you because you have fallen into sin and that simple word that you have rejected is what's going to be judging you, is what he is saying at the end of verse 13, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Did everyone everyone follow that? So that's what that's they're mocking him for his simplicity, the simplicity of the gospel. What you got to be kidding me, Jesus Christ? Because some guy died on a cross two thousand years ago. Give me a break. Well, that very message that you mocked will be what judges you. Your rejection of that message. That's what he means. Therefore, verse fourteen: Hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us for we have made lies our refuge and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. So what he's talking about here, hey Mike, can you get me a a water? What he's talking about here is he has been prophesying to them, look, you guys are going to be judged you're going to get wiped out. You're going to be des- destroyed. And so these people are saying, what, their response to it is like, no, we're, we are cool. Uh, we don't, oh, wow, how about that? That's service for you. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. <laughs> That's right. Okay, I've been humbled. <laughs> so they've, they've said, look, we've made a covenant with death. In other words, you know, w- we're not going to die. We know um, when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. You know, that's not going to happen. And this is the same thing from age to age to age. It's this pretty scary uh, phrase there at the end of verse 15. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. I really do believe that that is what people are saying deep down in their hearts who are rejecting the Lord. They know that they're believing a lie. They really do. They may not be coming out and saying it, but they've made lies their refuge. Verse 16 A wonderful, wonderful, wonderful verse quoted by Peter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So remember from time to time Isaiah all of a sudden leaves the present in as an encouragement to those who are still following the Lord he will take them well into the future. And here he takes them to the time of the coming of the Messiah where he 
establishes Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 2 says this, Come to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He's referring to Isaiah 28, 16 there. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. So he's quoting, Peter's quoting here. Isaiah chapter 28, where you have just this wonderful nugget of the Lord describing Jesus. It says a tried stone. What does that mean? That means we were talking this morning about tested. Every believer is tested. Jesus was tested. He was tested by Satan. He was also tested just through suffering, and, 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 and he, he was approved. But a tried stone is a stone that is, has been tested to make sure that it's going to work you know, for, for, as a part of the temple, as a part of the building of the temple. I don't know what they do, smash it with a, a, a hammer or whatever. A tried stone is tested and it's been approved. A precious cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone was the stone that was placed in the corner of the temple and it was really, they used the cornerstone to measure out everything else in the temple. So you could even say that a cornerstone, the entire temple is built using the cornerstone as a frame and point of reference. And that's who Jesus Christ is, right? He is the chief cornerstone. The church is is built on him, on the rock, which is him. He's the cornerstone, and he's the frame of reference for everything that we do. He's the tried stone, the chief cornerstone. Also, I will make justice the measuring line, verse 17, and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Referring back now to these people, these leaders in Jerusalem who had made a covenant with death, it says your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with Sheol, Sheol is the resting place of the dead, will not stand when the overflowing scourge passes through. Then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, it will take you for morning by morning. It will pass over by day and night. It will be a terror just to understand the report. For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap itself in it. So it's just, it's describing <clears throat> there in verse 20, sort of, you know, they, they've laid down in a bed. You know, there's that expression, you know, you, you've, you've, set, you've made your bed, you've laid down your bed, now you have to live with it. And, and, and the bed they're laying down in is, is just a refuge of lies. It's too short to stretch out on. Verse 21, for the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. David had a great victory there. 
He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon. There was an, another great, uh, Joshua had a great victory in Gibeon. That he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now therefore do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord, God of hosts, a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. So verse 23 through the end of the chapter, and we'll stop there. He goes back to encouraging the people of God. Again, at the time of Isaiah, uh, the, the, there were still, the, actually in the southern part in Jerusalem, there actually were, were many people who continued to plow the soil, seed the soil, and they just got to the point in their life where they wonder, is this any, is this worth it? Is this even worth it? I mean, sometimes, you know, we living in the city of Boston, New England, in the year 2011, we, we, we sow seed, we sow seed, we sow seed, we plow, we plow, we plow, we sow seed, and, and you can wonder after a while, you know, is, is what I'm doing make any, any, uh, you know, is there any result at all? Is there any good c- coming from it? I go to New England pastors' conferences, and sometimes the pastors are just really discouraged, like, what's going on here? That's what it's like ministering in a time of, with a nation which is similar to a fading flower. But here, Isaiah gives you and me comfort. He says, give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat and rose, the barley in the appointed place and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment, his God teaches him. For the black cumin, he's referring to seed here, is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. What he's saying here is, look, the plowing and the sowing will not last forever. There will be fruit. Keep going. Keep at it. You can't see the whole picture. I can, is what he is saying. And so he, you know, will end sort of with that encouraging word. So important, perseverance. Perseverance. Continuing to, to plow the soil, to plow the soil, to plow the soil. When I was a brand new Christian, I, f- I spent the first two years of my Christian life just going through all of Paul's letters. I had my little notebook. And the one thing that came up over and over and over again in Paul's letters Persevere. Persevere. Keep, keep tilling the soil. Just keep it up. In Colossians chapter uh, 1, that famous prayer um, uh, of his, he says, in Colossians chapter 1, he says, I may have to say it by memory here. I can't find it. For this reason, 
Since the day we heard of it, we do not cease to pray with you. So he, he, he prayed this over and over and over again. That you would be filled with the knowledge of his will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to the glorious riches. The NIV says, so that... The New King James Version says, for all patience and long suffering and joy. See, so the whole, the whole prayer sort of climaxes. Look at, this is what, I pray all these things for you so that you will endure, so that you will have perseverance, so that you will have long suffering. He's encouraging there the people uh, in Colossus, just as he had done, just as Isaiah had done to the people living in Jerusalem who had lived about a thousand years before uh, that. So be encouraged, persevere, uh, keep plowing, keep sowing. Tonight we're going to just end, uh, close the service with prayer. We are going to 